for that. I'm going to go ahead and jump into the Word this morning. We've not really been in a series, uh, but I have been sort of focusing in on spiritual warfare a little bit. Last week we talked about strongholds and how the enemy really seeks his one weapon that Satan uses and has used from the beginning is lies. He doesn't come to you with a sword or with any kind of physical weapon, but he comes with an idea. He comes with a thought. He comes with a subtle lie that he uh, tries to attempt to get to infiltrate your mind so that you begin to believe things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God until he brings you into a cycle of behavior that is ultimately destructive in your life. Now this week I want, to, I want to preach a message called Standing Guard. And the reason is, is because Paul realized very specifically that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? We wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the spiritual wickedness of this world, against the rulers of darkness in the heavenly places. And so he, throughout the New Testament, throughout Scripture, you see that really what we're at war with are unseen beings. We are at war with the demonic realm, literally, who is working to influence people to believe things contrary to God's Word. And we see the fallout of that on a daily basis in our lives and throughout the world. And so I want to say, you know, like, here's the thing. We're going to talk about standing guard because how many of y'all when you watch a football game you like a game it's like seven to three nobody likes that do they if it's like seven to three it's a defensive battle I don't care much about it uh, I'd rather just be somebody scoring like 70 points in a football game or something and they just be going out I like offense I want to attack the devil right and the best way to attack honestly is not by screaming at demons or anything like that the best way to attack is to preach the gospel share the gospel with people who don't know Jesus so they can come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved, make disciples of those people so it begins to infect their family, their workplace, and their entire community, and you actually end up taking a community for the kingdom of God and pushing back darkness. Amen? That's offense. But what I'm noticing in our world and in our, in our generation, and even in the New Testament, is that there are times for offense, but there are times when you just need to be alert and you need to be on guard. I used to play basketball with some guys and, and sometimes the football players who really had no... Because you can play football and not even necessarily have a whole lot of coordination if you can just hit somebody real hard. Amen. And sometimes them guys would come in and play basketball with us and they could barely dribble. But whenever you'd go through the lane, son, you wasn't going to score on them. They were going to guard your hind end. They were going to put up a hard defense, and sometimes I'm telling you, you need to be like those guys when it comes to the devil. When he starts moving in your lane, you need to start slapping and saying, you ain't coming in here and scoring on me and my family. Amen. We have to be standing guard, especially in the culture that we live in. Now, I want to pray. We're going to turn to Acts chapter 20, verse uh, verse. 28 through 31, but before, but before I begin this message, I really want to pray for myself and pray for all of us. And so let's just take a moment just to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, the truth is we need to be standing guard against some of the things that we're faced with in our world today. And that's what your scripture teaches. And so, Lord, as you anoint this word, I ask that you would help me to be gracious. I ask that you would help me to be kind. And Lord, speak these hard truths with love to the best of, of, of my ability Lord, as you anoint me to do so. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you'd open every ear to hear. And I just pray, God, that you'd bring us all to a place of repentance, that you would strengthen us to be on our guard against our enemy, Lord God, and that we could grow and be transformed into your image by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, the very first thing that he said in the beginning was that he placed them in the garden 
to do two specific things. It says for him them to tend it and to keep it. Now, if you look at those words in the Hebrew language, it literally just means they, they were to cultivate it. They were to uproot anything that would be growing that shouldn't be growing there. And that they would protect it and guard it so that nothing would come in on the inside and begin to destroy their fruit on the inside of that garden. And so they had to be on guard while they were cultivating their fruit. And right now in your spiritual walk, you're looking to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit or the walk with Jesus. But you've got to be on guard against falsehoods and lies and different deceptions that are trying to creep into your life and into your family's life. So my question to us this morning is how do we put a good strong guard against the devil? And I want to use this uh, backdrop of Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, the people that were overseeing the church in Ephesus because Paul planted a lot of churches. But if you read in the book of Acts, one church that he planted, probably maybe the greatest church that he did plant was in Ephesus. If you know anything about the New Testament, his, his, his main man Timothy was down there pastoring that church. When he goes into Ephesus and he plants this church, that when he first shows up, there were people that believed in God. He asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit since they believed. And they said, man, we didn't know whether there even was a Holy Spirit. He ends up up, laying hands on them. They receive the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues and prophesy. And all of a sudden, people begin getting saved in Ephesus. And there's kind of an uprising at this point. And, and, the, and he goes into the synagogues. They're not receiving him in the synagogues. So he goes over to another school. He begins to teach on a daily basis. They're listening to him and people are getting saved. And the more the Word of God begins to spread, the Scripture t shows that what happens is miracles start to be done at the hands of Paul. Matter of fact, so many miracles broke out in Ephesus that they started taking handkerchiefs that had just touched Paul's flesh and they would take it to people who were sick or afflicted with demons. And when they just touched that handkerchief, literally they'd get set free from demons and they'd be healed of their sickness and diseases. This is where we get the prayer cloth from, isn't it, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. We take pray over it and send it to somebody because it has a biblical precedent. They were taking handkerchiefs that touched Paul and it messed with people's minds so much that there were seven dudes named the seven sons of Sceva. They went to a guy that they knew was demon-possessed. They said, hey, you know what, devil? In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches about, come out of that man. And when they said that, the demon in the man looked at this man and said, we know Jesus and we know Paul. But who are you? And the demon in that man rose up, beat that guy, beat all seven of them half to death, stripped them naked, and they went off running. And it scared everybody in the community so bad that they came confessing their sins, repenting and turning to Jesus. And matter of fact, the Bible says that revival broke out so much that they brought their magic and their witchcraft worth 50,000 pieces of silver and burned it in a bonfire. Now, I'm saying, hey, Lord, do that in Clay County. Amen. Like, let's send some handkerchiefs out. Like, do something in Clay County where people are bringing in their stuff and saying, we're done with this. We're burning it. We're ready to turn to Jesus. We need people to be woken up in that shape, that form, that fashion. Now, now, don't get me wrong. It didn't, everything didn't just turn into a utopia because there were some silversmiths, right? And they were making idols, and they got all upset over it. And they said, you know what? We need to get rid of these dudes because he is attacking our goddess here, Artemis, Diana. And we're afraid that we're going to lose our, our money because we, we're you know, people are, people are turning from the worship of these idols to worshiping Jesus, and we're losing our money. And so they get all upset, and there's an uprising. But he ends up leaving for a time after about three years of setting up this church. He comes back one more time in Acts chapter 20 to talk to them. 
And he knows that it's the last time that he is going to talk to them. And it's so interesting to me what he says whenever he meets them this last time. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, he's speaking to the Ephesian church, the elders that are there in Ephesus. And he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Notice this. Even from your own number, people among you, men will arise and what will they do? They will distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. They ain't going to get swords out. They're not going to start killing people. They're not going to get up a bunch of guns. and start. That's not the danger that they face. The danger that they're facing is that there will be a distortion of the truth. Not blatant lies, but distortion of the truth. And he says, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day with tears. Now, if it was in an American culture, probably when he left the church, he would have went to him and said, boys, you know what? There's a lot of ideas out here. You just need to be gentle with everybody. Don't upset anybody's apple cart. Try not to be offensive and be as kind as you possibly can to everybody. And maybe you'll influence some people and they'll come to the church. But that's not what he said, did he? He said, no, I wept night and day for three years because you are surrounded with so many ideas, so many false beliefs that you don't realize that if you allow this to infiltrate the church, you will lose everything that we have gained so far with the kingdom of God and pushing back darkness. So there were many distortions of truth in Ephesus, and I want to work through some of this real quick because I like to have context. I like to know what they were actually going through in the Bible in order to see how it fits into my world now. Now, in Ephesus, this is kind of crazy what they lived in, but they lived in a culture that had a lot of different teachings, the main teaching in Ephesus was based around the worship of a goddess named Artemis or Diana. I don't know if you've ever heard of Diana, but she was a, she was a Greek goddess. You could put that, that, that next slide up. And so the first one was Artemis worship or Diana. And this, this was a temple. Matter of fact, could you put that picture up of the temple? This, look, this, this temple, that right there was there 2,000 years ago. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. You could go in, there was a huge statue of, of Diana, this Greek goddess in this place, and people would come from all over the world to come and pay homage to Diana. Now, the women were the primary uh, worship leaders in this place because Diana, it was taught that she was the author of man, that man came from woman, and that she was the goddess of fertility, among other things. And the women would braid their hair in a very particular way. They would wear costly apparel and jewelry and stuff like that. And so when Paul writes Timothy, he actually addresses this. And he's trying to make a divide because women are getting saved and coming to the worship of Jesus Christ, but they're still wearing the same things that they wore whenever they would pay their homage to Artemis and Diana. So he's saying, listen, women, you ain't got to braid your hair and wear all that, all that costly jewelry and apparel and stuff like that. You need to make a distinction between what you were and what you now are. Because you had over 90% of the Ephesians worshiping Artemis and Diana. And they taught that they were the author of man. And this is why Paul addresses false doctrine. He says, look, you aren't to be teaching those things in here, women. And he said, when you come in here, you need to pay attention. You need to not be teaching that. And then he corrects the false doctrine by saying, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
They told these women when they left the Artemis worship that if they left because she was the goddess of fertility, they would die giving birth to their children. And he actually addresses that in his letter to 1 Timothy in chapter 2. He says, you will be saved through childbearing. Now we can just read that out of its context and say, well, women need to have babies or they won't be saved. That's ridiculous. It's good, to, it's good, right, to read things in their context. He says, you're going to be saved through childbearing because God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is the one who gives you the power to have a child and He will protect you and you will be saved through that. So that was one form of worship that he addressed. Secondly, though, there was a cult and magic which we, t- we touched on right there. They came and they burnt 50,000 p- pieces of silver wor- wor- worth of occult and magic. And the, I counsel people sometimes and they really deal with demonic issues, strongholds in their lives. And not a whole lot of times have I seen it, but several times I have seen it where you can go back to somebody playing with tarot cards or a Ouija board or a spirit box or something real weird that I ain't ever even heard about before. And all of a sudden, this opened a door for their life in the demonic. This was going on in mass in Ephesus. But the thing about Ephesus was they mixed everything all up together. I remember going to India and preaching the gospel. The thing about it is, is if you pre- present the gospel to somebody who is in Hinduism or other religions, they'll say, yeah, we'll be glad to worship that God. We're just going to worship Him among our other 50 to 100 gods that we also worship. We'll put Him right there on, on, next to the other idols. And the point of this is that Paul was trying to say, you cannot mix Jesus with other religions. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. And when you get there, you can't add anything else onto Him. But man, our culture is really pushing this reality of let's just mix it all up. Let's not be offensive. Let's just try to make everybody happy and be kind. Thirdly, were Judaizers, and really these were just Jewish people that came in and said, you know what, y'all need to come back under the law. You're going to be a Christian, you need to follow dietary restrictions, you need to wear certain clothes, and you need to be circumcised, otherwise you cannot be saved. What we believe is, right, that faith in Christ is what you are saved by alone. And that faith in Christ gives you the Holy Spirit who regenerates you, gives you a new heart and mind, and it produces sanctification and transformation in you. And you are changed by that. And works are a natural product of your faith in Christ. Amen? Lastly, this one was one that was pretty prevalent, and it was Gnosticism. And I think this one probably is maybe the closest to what we're wrestling with in our day and age. But in 1 Timothy, when Paul addresses it, and again, Timothy is the pastor at Ephesus, he says, Timothy, what do you need to do? In in 1 Timothy 6, verse 20, if you put that one up. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Guard. Notice that language. He says, Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. That's gnosis. That's Gnosticism. He said, Which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Now, you all probably don't know what Gnosticism is, but, but if you studied it, uh, they loved secret stuff, man. They had, they had all the newest revelation and, and all this stuff like that. But one of the things that they taught primarily was that the body was evil. The body itself was evil and what we need to do was get set free from the body. And out of that came a teaching where they taught that the resurrection of Jesus was metaphorical. And so when you, when you talk about Jesus being raised from the dead, really it's just about a spiritual enlightenment or a spiritual awakening. What you need to understand is that Christianity honors the body. The body in and of itself is not evil. It's the flesh, our sinful nature that is evil. 
The body is so honored that when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, folks, it was not metaphorical, it was literal. His physical flesh and blood body came back to life and was glorified the same way that if you put your faith in Christ at the end of the age, you will be raised from the dead physically and be given a glorified body that will live forever and ever with Christ on this earth that is completely renewed and regenerated. Amen. And so that's important because what they would teach is this. Look, if the body's evil, you can't really control it. And that means you can commit any kind of sin that you want in your body and the grace of God will cover it. They taught that grace was actually a license for sin. Now that's one of the most prevalent teachings in the American church. That the grace of God gives you license to do whatever you want to do and God will forgive you. Amen. Let's just let that settle for a minute and saturate. And here's the thing, that is such a prevalent teaching that, that, that honestly most preachers in America now don't even call people to repentance. They never say, hey, this is what the Word of God says. You, you're not supposed to live this way. You need to turn from that. And what, what, what has been bought into was that this grace of God that God has given you, He just allows you to continue in whatever sin that you would like to and He will forgive you. Can I tell you this, that God's forgiveness is robust. Man, he, he met me in the worst stages of my life. And am I perfect now? No, I still have sin that I'm wrestling with. Does God forgive me when I confess my sin? The Bible says, yes, absolutely. He's faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all right, un, unrighteousness. But what you've got to understand about the grace of God is it doesn't just overlook sin. It transforms you from the inside out so that you can begin overcoming sin. And this is an important part of Christian teaching that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to righteousness so that we can live unto holiness so that when people look at our lives, we're not like the world. We may struggle. We may have some hang-ups. We may have some strongholds that we're wrestling with, but God is changing us. The grace of God changes who we are, and so we have to deal with some of these false teachings. But here's, I don't have time to really get into all of the teachings of the church today, but there was a Barna study on practicing Christians just back in 2015. So this is like six years ago. And here's what they come up with. Notice this, practicing Christians. People who say, I go to church, we read our Bibles at home, we pray. Not people who don't believe. He says 61% agree with ideas rooted in New Age spirituality. New Age spirituality is taking off in America. You go to the book sections, there's huge book sections. I've read several of those books. I wish I hadn't. Um, But what they generally do is you you mix all religions up together. You mix Hinduism, you mix Eastern meditation, and you throw Jesus in there somewhere in the corner. Now, Jesus was a really good guy. He was an enlightened guy. But, But see, there is no sin... And there is, no, there is no salvation needed. There is a divine spark within that you just need to tap into. See, this is false teaching. And I don't know if anybody likes to come in on Sunday morning and hear a message on false teaching, but the problem is, is that if you're not on your guard, people are being due. If 61% of practicing Christians believe in this, as a pastor, I have the responsibility to talk about it. 54% resonate with postmodernist views. Postmodernism is just essentially, it's the Sheryl Crow song, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Amen. Basically, you live your own truth because there is no absolute truth. He says 38% are sympathetic to the teachings of Islam. One of the greatest teachings of globalism is that ultimately all religions lead to the same God. Christianity teaches the exact opposite. 
Only Christ leads you to the true God. Every other God is a false God. Amen. 36% accept ideas associated with Marxism. And you may not believe this, but Marxism is actually basically changing our entire political landscape right now in America. Whether you realize it or not. But Karl Marx, who people in these uh, social justice movements and different things like that, they're, they're professed Marxists, okay? But what he actually said, he made the statement, he said, I have forfeited heaven, I know it full well. I was once dedicated to God, my soul is now chosen for hell. And in the 20th century, communist China, Soviet Russia adopted his ideologies of Marxism and over 100 million people died under that oppressive ideology. And yet somehow in America we think, hey, it's a good idea to maybe adopt some of this guy's philosophies and apply it to our politics. And it's maybe even a good idea if we adopt some of that within the church to deal with some of the social issues that we face. Let me tell you something. Jesus knows how to deal with social issues. He knows how to bring justice. He knows how to defeat racism because he transforms the human heart. And so we look to Jesus and not Karl Marx, but 29% believe ideas based on secularism. Secularism means we're not going to have any religion. We don't want any spirituality, no God, no devil, whatever we can touch, fill with our hands, and verify with science. That's what we want to hold on to. 40% believe any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. And 88% of American adults hold to syncretism meaning that they hold to a mixture of worldviews as opposed to one single worldview. Isn't that crazy? And this is the world that we live in. So really, at the end of the day, you come in, you hear one sermon on Sunday, most likely probably not going to really enable you to powerfully resist the strategy of the enemy that is infiltrating you because you spend probably five to six hours a day on your phone, on social media, and all it takes is one good, strong, solid influencer to get you down a path away from God. Because we're not in the Word of God near as much as we're on Instagram. This is a reality in America. And so we're thinking about these things, and really in a nutshell, what has infiltrated not just America but the church is something called postmodern secular humanism. And I promise you, all of the ideas about what, what, what we think about abortion or what we think about sexuality or what we think about the family, our ideas are now becoming based not on Scripture or on the Bible. That's outdated. It's based on these philosophies who come from men since the Enlightenment period. And you got to study history find this out. I know it's a little bit more. I'm going to get real practical on the back end of this. All right, y'all? Like on the back end, you're going to be like, okay, I understand what he's saying now. Amen. But here's the, th- I, here's the thing. Postmodern secular humanism teaches this, essentially. That religion is oppressive because it places restrictions on you. You mean tell me I don't get to do what I want? I don't get to have sex with who I want? I don't get to say what I want? I don't get to believe what I want? I remember becoming a Christian and thinking, my Lord, I've got to change. I mean, I can't keep living like this and thinking the way that I, I mean, because I'm, I'm living. But this is what this teaches. And, and we are individualists. We get to choose for our own selves what we want because all these other things are oppressive. No, you know what really is oppressive? When you live without God, you don't realize that you are actually a slave to your sin currently. You're not free. You think you're free, but you're not free. I've lived there. I've been there. Secondly, there's no good or evil, no spiritual realm, no higher cause or plan. Thirdly, there is no absolute truth, and the Bible is an outdated, untrustworthy book. Live your own truth based on your own experience, 
Science is God. Humans are an authority unto themselves. You are a highly evolved animal. Therefore, sex is simply an impulse to be released. And therefore, marriage and family are not sacred, but oppressive societal constructs. Right now, our government is really pushing as a political agenda that family and gender are oppressive societal constructs. Do you, I mean, I need you to understand that if, you, that if you somehow sympathize with that, you have zero biblical worldview. From the beginning, God created man and a woman to have a family to reveal the glory of God. Amen. And that within that family, you would see love and you would raise godly children and they would reflect the image of God. And that there were certain roles within that. And when you begin to try to attack those norms in society, what you're attacking is really the basic fabric of how God designed the world. And that's why it's demonic in nature. And I know this isn't very popular, but it's really good for us. This is why Paul says to them in that scripture, the first thing that he says is keep watch. Beware and guard. So like as a pastor, I know when I, when I get this message together in my heart, I'm thinking, I don't want to say this. There's going to be people in there, Lord, that really are probably not even going to come back to church because I'm going to say things that are offensive and hurtful and, to them because they don't want to hear these things. And I get that. But I have a responsibility if I believe the truth of Scripture and I believe what God says that I'm saying this to you, I promise you, in love. Because I believe that believing lies according to my faith is actually going to long-term be destructive for you and take you down a path that is away from the kingdom of God. And so he says you got to keep watch about these ideas that are influencing and infecting the church. And then secondly, he says you've got to be on your guard or you've got to stay awake. You've got to be watchful and alert. I feel like everywhere I've gone in my life, there's always been a dog outside of my house by my neighbor that has kept me up at night. Anybody can sympathize with me. I, look, I had, a, I had a pistol one time to the head of a pit bull. And, I knew, and the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me do it. I mean, those things just bark all night long. My father-in-law, I go over to his house sometimes. Sometimes I want to get away and get, get in private so I can study the Bible and stuff. And I go to his house, and I kid you not, I step, as soon as I step foot on his property, the neighbor's dogs. And they just sit out there and bark the whole time I'm in there. It's all you can hear. I go outside in the middle of the night. I, I roll, my, I roll my, my garbage can down to the curb, and these dogs. I say, I'm on my property. Dogs, man. <laughs> you feel me on that? <laughs> but the thing about that is, is it's like the Holy Spirit said to me, you know those dogs, Clay? If you could be like that spiritually. See, when, not, I, don't even start being alert whenever the devil comes on your pride. If he gets close to your pride, I don't want the devil and these ideas getting close to you. I'm going to start barking before they creep in. I'm going to start barking before they cross the line. I'm going to be that kind of dog when it comes to my family, when it comes to my flock, when it comes to my people. I don't want you led astray with this. Now, people who believe these things, are we going to be kind to them? Are we going to love them? Are we going to lead them? Absolutely. We're not here to be angry. We're not here to be crass. We're not here to be shrill about the shape of the world. We love people and the people that are in the world. And we hate that there are false teachings and ideas that are destroying people's lives. We don't want that. We don't want to come off as angry, but we, can, we must always speak the truth in love. Must always. And so that's why we go through this. And in 1 Peter 5, 
verse 8 through 9, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now notice, he said be alert, just like those dogs, man. You've got to be watching for these things that are coming in to your heart, coming into your spirit, coming in on your children. You've got to be alert to it. And then I love that he says be alert because Peter is the one that is watching, that is writing this. And it literally means, the word that he uses means to stay awake. And if you remember Peter, I believe one of his greatest regrets in his life is when Jesus was going to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood, said, could you pray with me just one hour? And he came back to them time and time again. And every time he came back to them, they had fallen asleep. And Peter is saying, you need to stay alert because I reap the consequences of what it looks like when the, the, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak and you fall asleep on what God's asking you to do. And he said, and I denied him three times. And so now he's telling the church, I went through this. You do not want to go through this. If you fall asleep, you're going to reap the consequences and you don't want to go that direction. He's saying, you need to be alert to the things that are going on in the world. Derek Prince in his book, Blessings and Cursings, he said he had a friend at a restaurant in New Orleans and there was Satanists. There. And I, know, I understand that there's a difference between Satanists and Luciferianists. This is just what the book said. It said it was Satanists. Uh, but, but they said there were these Satanists who went around and they had, in 1998, they had a six-point worldwide vision for a time of darkness, and it was accompanied by prayer and fasting. So literally, these Satanists were going around evangelizing uh, like a Christian would, and they had a six-point vision that they were praying and fasting for during this time in New Orleans. And notice what they said. They were praying and fasting that the Antichrist would manifest himself soon. Number two, that ministers, leaders, and missionaries would fall. Number three, that ministries and works of God would be destroyed. Four, that Christians would become complacent, want peace over and above all, and seek churches that do not preach a full gospel with pastors that keep the peace no matter what the sin. I, I, read, I go back to that on occasion because I want to be aware of what is Satan's strategy? What is his tactic? What does he want for my life? And right now I'm telling you, in America it is becoming increasingly popular and there will be more and more pressure for us and for every other church to become that church. Keep the peace at all costs. Don't mention sin. Don't talk about hard truths. Don't offend anyone. I read something this week where it talked about that the last virtue of secularism is niceness. All you got to be is just nice to everybody. Just don't offend them. Don't give them any hard truths. Whatever they believe, let them believe it. Especially don't share your faith. Number five, that Christians would cease their fasting and prayer. Some of us, we ain't never even fasted and prayed in the first place. Eh? I mean, that was rude, Clay. Calm down. Oh, I, I asked for the Lord to help me to be gracious this morning. Six, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit would be ignored. We're doing a good job at that as well in the church. The question is, are we even alert to this? Are we even aware? Now, I know that seems very outlandish. It seems just crazy. and is it like That's probably not even true. I can promise you this. This is the enemy's desire for all of us. 
He wants us to become so complacent, so asleep, so distracted with what's going on in the world that we no longer have a sober mind. We no longer care about people's eternities. We no longer care about the truth. And we're caught up in this wave of the culture and the world overtaking our minds. But he says to have a sober mind. And I'm telling you, I believe right now most people are in a media-induced mania. I mean, we watch so much crazy news and toxic trends and everything that's viral and the political divide. Sometimes I get up and Andrea told me I need to quit doing this, but I, try, I, get, I don't watch the news, but I read articles all the time. And let me tell you something, they're just as poisonous as the daggone TV news. And I got, I got up this morning and read some of that stuff, and I read about well, half of one article. I said, my Lord, I got to get out of this before I get up and preach. I said, I got to get in the Word of God to cleanse this. Because we're in this media-induced mania and we get these wrong mindsets. Let me give you five mindsets that are contrary to a sober mind. Number one is the anxious mind. People are getting so overwhelmed with anxiety right now that they don't know how to carry on. And right now we are the most medicated group of people in the world in America right now for anxiety that's ever been on the face of the planet. And... We have this constant anxiety, but we also have a distracted mind because we're caught up in the sensational and every viral trend that's going on, and we get so weighed. If you notice, you'll find yourself getting weighed down. You scroll Facebook long enough, you'll experience that weight that is coming on you, and you need to get disconnected, get undistracted, and back engaged with the Word of God and with what Jesus is saying. Thirdly, the selfish mind. This is just the mind that says, you know what? I ain't worried about nobody else. I'm trying to take care of me. It's all about me and what is best for me right now. And that is the opposite of what Christ has called us to. He's called us to look out for one another, to watch one another. Fourthly is the complacent mind. And most people are really in this, in this situation. They're just like, you know what? I don't care. I ain't got a dog in the fight. I'm just going to go with the flow. Whatever anybody does, I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to offend anybody. I'm just going to go with whatever direction it carries me. I promise you, if you are complacent and you let the wind take you, it's going to take you down a terrible path and fifthly is the cynical mind you look at the world and you just say man you know what this world is gone it's messed up and you look at it with sarcasm and cynicism and you're just angry and hateful but see the biblical mindset is not to be intoxicated with any of the things of this world but to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to have the word of God renewing your mind on a daily basis so that you stand in the truth of God's word and you're able to exhibit love and goodness and joy and peace in a world that is literally going crazy and that you can speak the truth in love in a way that it's winsome that people hear it and they say man I believe this person is actually doing this not out of love not because they're a religious bigot or a zealot or anything like that but because they generally believe what they're saying and he says when you do this when you have a sober mind then you need to be alert and you need to resist the devil standing firm in the faith you cannot stand firm in the faith unless you know the truth of God's word and so let me move over into the practical. Y'all ready? Have I worn you out yet? Is your mind just like, yeah, show Clay, you overloaded us. In Acts 20, the first command, I'm going to give two points with some sub points. But when Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders going through all this, the first thing that he says is he says, you need to keep watch over yourselves. So number one, you guard yourself. Number one, I've got to guard myself. I've got to pay attention. Sometimes I'll just be honest with you. As a pastor... I get overwhelmed sometimes, y'all. I get anxiety. I get worried. 
I wonder if I'm caring for people the way that I should. And sometimes I, I think, man, I'm just letting things slip through the crack. I'm not doing a good job. I get overwhelmed with my responsibilities as a parent. Like these things happen and I've got to guard myself. I've got to pay attention to things that are trying to creep in when I'm at my worst. And, and so the first thing that I want to do, is, A, is you've got to guard your gates. And what I mean by your gates is you've got to guard, this is what we tell little kids, right? Your eyes, your ears, and your mouth. You've got to guard these things. Your ears, you must guard. You have to ask yourself on a daily basis, what am I listening to? What is infiltrating my mindset? Because odds are you are adopting a philosophy and a doctrine and a teaching. If you're going to college right now, I'm telling you, I've been there. I went to two colleges. And you can't imagine the ideas and the ideologies ideologies that were just thrown upon me and for a season I embraced some of them as truth. The only way I could dismantle those ideologies was to embrace the Word of God in my life and allow it to pull those strongholds down. So i got to watch what I'm listening to. I've also got to watch what I'm looking at, my eyes, right? So my eyes, if I'm guarding my eyes... And here's the thing, if the enemy comes at you, if you get in a fight, the best place to go is hit somebody in the eye. Amen, then they can't see. But uh, they say if a shark attacks you, you know what you need to do is just poke its eye and it'll let you go. Amen. It's a good tip for if you go to, when you guys go to the beach next year. <laughs> yeah, shark attack, ah, get him in the eye. But the enemy's going to come at your eyes. I don't know if you realize this or not. I talk to people every day. I used to be addicted to pornography. If you Look, the thing about Facebook and Instagram and every other social media and everything, you're going to find an image that just creeps up in there, and it takes a man down a path. Maybe it takes a woman down a path, but contrary to popular belief, I'm not a woman, so I don't know. I can't sympathize. Okay? There are two different things. Men and women are different. That's a teaching that, that people don't realize right now. And here's the thing. When this happens, you have to guard your eyes. What do you see? If you know something is going to take you in a direction, then you need to make sure that you're making no provision for the lust of the flesh. You need to guard your eyes. And let me tell you something. For me, sometimes I just have to delete every app that I got that will ever put an image in front of my face. I just ain't going to flirt with it. I remember I, I never had Facebook and Instagram. My wife told me I needed to get them to have influence and stuff like that. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if she said it that way. That's what it felt like she said. She'd probably get mad at me for saying that. You need Facebook, Clay. Nobody knows about your life. I don't want nobody to know. <laughs> anyway, you got to guard it. And thirdly, you got to guard your mouth, your tongue. The, the, look, of the most sanctified of Christian believers, the last thing that you're going to get control of is your tongue. Amen. Yeah, I heard that. Somebody said, mm-hmm. The Bible says that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. For with it we bless God and we curse our brothers and sisters made in the image of God. No man can tame the tongue. But guess what? The Holy Spirit can tame your tongue if you'll put a watch over your mouth and say, Holy Spirit, help me to not say something that's going to cause division. Help me to not speak something that's going to tear somebody down. Because even in the church, we tear one another down. We speak evil of one another. We gossip. We berate. We do all these things. And he says, you've got to put a watch over your mouth. B, you've got to guard your mind. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Gird up the loins. I love that. That's, that's King James language right there. Gird up the loins of your mind. Back in the day, if they was going to take off running, they was wearing them big outfits, and they'd have to gird up themselves so they could take off running. You know what I'm saying? 
But the idea, the loins are literally your reproductive system. And I thought, why would you even use those words in the Scripture? Why would you gird up the reproductive system of your mind? Because your mind reproduces things. The thoughts that you think about are going to reproduce. And you've got to learn to guard your mind, to take your thoughts captive, to do an evaluation of what you've been thinking about on a daily basis. To take that stuff captive and gird up the loins of your mind because what you think on is what you will recreate and reproduce in your life. That's why in Philippians 4.8 he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he knew that the world was wild. They were being persecuted. People were being killed. Bad things were happening. And if you watch the media right now and you get caught up in the divisiveness that is spreading in the media and you see all the current cultural events, what you are going to start to think is you're going to get very cynical and negative about the condition of the world. It's a sad thing when Christians get together and the only thing they can talk about is how bad a shape everything's in. Can I tell you that things are in bad shape? But Christians are to somehow hold the tension of the burden that the world is broken and interceding and praying for a broken world that needs healing while at the same time focusing on all the good that God is doing in our world. We hold that tension. We remain joyful. And this is one of my probably downfalls. I need, I need God to help me be a more joyful person. I need God to help me be a happier person. This is what uh, Richard talked about in our devotion this morning at 10 o'clock. And I need the Lord to help me do that because I carry the burden of all the things that are going on and I forget sometimes that I need to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice and focus on the good that God is doing. But I've got to guard my mind. See, you've got to guard your hearts. And this is a big deal because even in the church, man, people are... Have you ever noticed that people are more sensitive now than they've ever been? Used to, you could say things to people and they wouldn't get offended. They'd just say something back and cut you back. You say something to people now, man, they'll get offended and they will take it to the grave. And that's why you got to guard your heart against bitterness, against offense, against anger, against outrage. And because here's what I want you to understand, that even in the church, folks, somebody will offend you. Somebody will say something hurtful. Somebody will betray you. There are people in this room that probably either have been offended or will be offended at something that I've said. I get that. I understand that. I'm not perfect. The question is, what will you do once this has happened to you? How will you respond to it? In 1 Corinthians, there were people that were so offended at one another, they were taking each other to court, okay? And Paul writes them, and he's like, boys, you're going to court, you're dealing with all this, I know you're upset at one another, but notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7 through 8. He says, wouldn't it be far better to just take it, to let yourselves be wronged and forget it? All you're doing is providing fuel for more wrong, more injustice, bringing more hurt to the people of your own spiritual family. And I know you get hurt in churches. Many of you have been hurt in churches. But the biblical response is literally to forgive and to do your best to forget it because he's saying when you allow that bitterness to get into your life where you just start going around saying, I've been church hurt, I've been church hurt, I've been church hurt, all you're doing is providing more fuel for wrong and injustice and you're tearing down the church in the process. So you've got to guard yourself. You've got to guard your heart against offense, against getting angry at people. And I don't know about you, but Andre and I, we can sit down sometimes and, and I can say something and I can start thinking, man, I bet I offended that person. I bet that person got hurt. And you know what? I don't even know if they were or not. 
Y'all ever been in that situation? You leave a place. I already got a little bit of social anxiety. So if I'm around 100 people and I talk to 15, I go home thinking, oh, my God, what would I say? <laughs> you ever do that? And I'm telling you, if you don't know, let it go. And trust that your brothers and sisters will love you enough to come to you and say, hey, that hurt me. I wish you hadn't said that. And then I'll say, I'm sorry, brother. Forgive me. And they say, it's okay. I love you. And we'll hug and we'll go on. <laughs> Amen. That's how it works in the church. Secondly, my last point, and I'm, I'm finishing up here. you got to guard the flock. He says to keep watch over yourselves, one, and then all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, for, he's talking to pastors, so he's saying, you know, you got to keep guard over the flock, what they're believing, what is being taught among them, what kind of teachings they're experience, experiencing. And here's the thing. You are a shepherd of someone. You may not be a shepherd of a church, but you shepherd your family. Many of you are school teachers. You're shepherding those, those students, what's going on in their lives. You're caring for their souls. You're watching over them. The kids at your house, your family, dads, your, your wife, and, 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 and your kids, you're shepherding them, and you've got to watch. So, A, if you're keeping watch over the flock, one of the first things that you've got to guard is you've got to guard your marriage. And you got to pay attention to this. I asked Andrea last night, I'm like, you think we're doing a pretty good job or no? Because when you have kids, everybody right now, we're having kids at an alarming rate. I mean, they need to do a Barna study on it. It, it, it. We're having kids at an alarming rate. People are getting pregnant. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what y'all are doing. But we keep having them. And, and when you have a baby, it just, it, tra- it changes your life for the better. But man, your marriage can sometimes like... It, it's, it's an adjustment, isn't it? But then there are other adjustments. But you have to guard your marriage. You've got to spend time with one another. You've got to communicate with one another. You've got to kiss one another on occasion. Amen. Amen. And within that same context, I know we've got a lot of singles here, but you need to guard your purity if you're single. Because you are creating an environment. You need to respect and honor the person that you are dating. And you know what? Let me give you a little side tip. No, most people can't receive this, but Paul actually said, hey, if you're single, it's best if you just stay single so that you can serve the Lord without distraction. So if you are single, I'm going to tell you right now, thank God for it. Because you're hoping God sends you somebody and He's going to send you somebody that's messed up. Because there ain't nobody perfect yet. And it's going to be a battle getting that lined out, especially with your own heart. You're going to have to change. It's going to be work. And then you're going to have to, let me tell you something. It's a blessing either way, whichever you choose. But you need to guard your heart. You need to protect your marriage. You need to protect your purity. You need to respect the person you are dating. Don't move into sexual territory. Amen. Because then you can have a marriage that is rooted and grounded in the Word of God and in Christ. And and you can pray together. You can read together. You can form a spiritual relationship where God can move. And then you're going to have kids. So B, you've got to guard your kids. Now, guarding Naomi is just kind of a process of making sure she don't fall and bust her head on the table because she's just walking around like a drunken person all the time. But I've been doing a lot of meditating as far as how do we raise our kids in a church? How do we disciple our kids? Because the more kids that we have, God hasn't been impressing on me for two years. How do we disciple these kids? Now, I'm going to give you some interesting things. And this is going to be a little bit of dif- difficult to stomach because we all have kids. But David Kenneman, who is the president of the Barna Group, here's what he said. He said, we have reached the point of irreversible decline in the church. Barring a move of God and a radical youth discipleship, this cannot be turned around by any natural means because our kids are being deformed by culture at such an accelerated rate. 
He's a man who is the president of a group that just studies the church and American culture. And he said, we cannot turn this around naturally. He said, we're headed in a direction where our kids are being deformed by the culture at an accelerated what rate, and there's no way to overturn this barring a move of God. And I don't know about you, but I don't just want to coast and say, you know what, we're just sort of going to maintain while, the, while our kids just fall away from God. And they say that 70% of youth who are raised Christian, when they hit college, they leave the faith. 70%. That's an astounding number, but that lets me know that we're not actually discipling our kids in the home. We're not actually discipling our kids even in the church most of the time. John Tyson, in a conversation with David Kinneman about the kids, now, this, like I said, this is going to hurt, y'all. I didn't write this. I didn't say this, but I want you to listen to it. He said, the reason is, is that the typical kid, put this up there, the next slide. The typical kid is number one, dropped into a travel sports system that lets them know that performing on a field is more important than stable roots, Christian faith, and church attendance. They are taught that this is the most important thing and our family will reorient all of our schedules around this one thing. Number two, he says, the typical kid is given a cell phone and exposed to the dark. Now here's one of the things that is interesting. This pastor is actually in New York City. Because I thought like travel sports was just something that happened in southeastern Kentucky, but it is global, folks. I mean, it's everywhere. But he said the typical kid is number two in that context, given a cell phone and exposed to the darkness of all humanity on the Internet. It has been scientifically proven that social media is absolutely toxic for young teenagers, but they spend the majority of their day engaged with it. We now have a pornification of young brains. Young men basically marinating their brains in violent pornography at the most malleable age of their entire life for around a decade. And he closes by saying the occasional youth retreat with a cool altar call and some fun games is not going to undo that. That is hard, isn't it? I read that, I thought, Lord, I'm going to read that tomorrow and 12 people will quit, quit and one person will try to kill me at the end of service. But what he's saying, I mean, look, travel sports in and of themselves, they're not bad. I've watched some of our people even try to maintain that challenge of how do we raise our kids where we do things. Because you don't just quit. We're not the kind of weirdo Christians where we just quit everything, right? We're not that. We're going to play sports. Our kids are going to be engaged in school. Things are going to happen. But how do we balance this where we're still letting them know that God comes first in everything? So that when they grow up, they don't believe that them scoring points is the most important part of their life. The most important part of their life. If they go and thank God they make it to Major League Baseball or something like that, and they make it, at least they could look back and say, you know what, we went and played sports, we were on a travel team, but you know what, we, our parents let us know that the most important thing was serving Jesus. And you know what? They monitored what I was looking at on my phone when they paid attention because that's the first thing. If you're going to watch your kids, you've got to watch their devices, sadly. They're on iPads and iPhones. And let me tell you something. When I was a kid, I looked at porn for the first time when I was very young. I remember 10 years old having a computer with dial-up internet and watching a pornographic image come down like this slow. Some of y'all laughed at that. Some of you didn't. Kids today got access to everything instantly instantly and so we're, we have to be aware of what because here's the thing they're going to see it they're going to see it you're not going to guard them and protect you can't be a helicopter parent and not let them live their life they got to live their life 
But you can interject yourself and say, what did you just see right there? Let's talk about that. And give them a biblical worldview. you got to be equipped with Scripture as a parent to say, let's talk about what you saw. How'd that make you feel? What does God say about that? What's the Word of God say about that? And if they keep falling, you keep teaching. And you reverse it with the truth of God's Word. You think that's a good thing? That's not a good thing. That's objectifying a woman. You can't do that, son. You can't do that. This is what... And, here, and, and teach them what it means to have a healthy relationship with a woman. How to have a healthy relationship that leads to a marriage where sex is a gift from God. Teach them these things. you got the Word of God to help you do it. Secondly, you got to guard their friends because... Some of their friends are going to be half crazy and you got to help try to help them pick their friends because you will become the company you keep. Amen? Thirdly, you got to watch drift. You know, I can always tell somebody, even people in the church, a lot of times when people who were once close to me, they start to just drift. I don't hear from them as much. You can almost bet something's happened. Something's crept in. Now, not always. But when you start seeing drift in your family, y'all aren't getting together to pray. You're not getting together to talk about issues that you're dealing with. You're not getting together to maybe even share what the Word of God says on an issue. And all of a sudden, this drift starts to happen. You're opening a door for the enemy to creep in and say, you know what, I can bring some divide here. I can bring some damage. I can bring some sinful behavior. And then lastly here, well, actually not lastly, but uh, C, you got to guard your friends. Now, I'm finishing up, y'all. But God has placed you with specific people. Even in our, you know, our, somebody told me that we got, we got one small group in this church right now. And people are loving their small groups. We got one small group. Somebody said there were 35. This small group is growing. There's 35 people in this small group, including the kids. And it's wilder and absolute craziness in there. And we got to, you know, that's one thing we're managing. How do we disciple our kids while also discipling our adults? Because it's hard, isn't it? Like a lot of people, you got kids, you can't even get into a small group. Like, man, we got to take care of our kids. And it's a battle. But here's the thing. We got to guard one another. God has placed you with some people. I don't know if you know this or not, but I can't call every one of you to check on you during the week on the phone as one pastor. We guard one another. We protect one another. God has given you people that you know that you can connect with, that you can contact, that you can call. Help me guard the flock. Help me watch out for the people that are here. God has given you friends. And then lastly, D, you got to guard the church. And the enemy would love nothing more than to tear apart the church, to destroy the church. But see, we guard the church against divisive tactics. I've told some of the people in our leadership before that we want to have a culture in our church that literally, if you have a negative attitude or a divisive attitude, you just, you just finally get so aggravated that you leave. Either you change or you just can't stand it here because we just ain't dealing with divisive attitudes. Amen. Secondly, we're not going to deal with divisive people. If somebody comes with gossip, if somebody comes with a negative attitude, if somebody's trying to tear somebody else down, just say, just say hey, look, we ain't going to do that here. That's not us. We're not talking about that person. We don't talk about people. We talk about the glory of God, the good things of God. We're not doing that. In Titus chapter 3, verse 9 through 11, it says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Notice what he says, verse 10. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time after that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Look, everybody gets a little bit divisive and a little bit negative on occasion. Give that person a warning. They keep doing it. Give them a second warning. If they keep doing it, then you just sort of back up. Say, you know what? I'm going to leave that person over to themselves because I cannot allow them to infect my life 
so that I become the same type of person with the same type of negative attitude. So this is how we got to guard our lives, how we've got to guard our kids. Has this been helpful to you this morning? Think about these things. And I, I pray, Lord, that, that I would be gracious that you would think about these things and think about, because, because God is calling you into a place where you're thoughtful about what you're getting into. I know that the best kind of sermons are ones that encourage you and you just leave out jumping and leaping and say, man, that was entertaining. But sometimes you've got to be thoughtful about what you're doing in your life. How are you guarding yourself and your kids and your family and the things that are going on in your life to make sure that the enemy is not gaining any ground? This is how we're to guard and protect one another. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, I'm finishing here. He says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. See, the Word of God and prayer is essential for us to make sure we're going to guard ourselves and we're going to guard our flock, we're going to guard one another. Amen. I want you to just bow your heads for a moment. And I want you to legitimately take this time right now to pray, to intercede, because I want us to pray and intercede for our families. I want us to think about where we're at with God. Where, where do we stand with God? Not just with the issue of salvation, but with the issue of are we growing? Are we allowing things into our life that are not of God, that are not of the Word of God? What are these things? And so, Lord, right now I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would expose every lie of the enemy, that you would move in our hearts. God, where there is offense or where there's bitterness or where there's anger, God, or division, isolate that, God, and uproot it right now in this moment in our hearts and in our lives. Father, where things have crept in into our children's lives and into our kids' lives, and God, it happens because the enemy is on the prowl, seeking whom he may devour. But Lord, we just rebuke the enemy right now that is coming against our families and against our marriages in Jesus' name. And Lord, we speak peace right now into the relationships in this church over our marriages, over our kids, in our homes. We pray, God, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, would you give us a sober mind and would you help us to be alert to the tactics of the enemy, Lord, so that we're not weighed down, that we're not led astray. But Lord, we come to the knowledge of the truth because, Lord, when we know the truth, that is where we find freedom. It's lies that enslave us, God. And so, Lord, I believe that right now your Holy Spirit is drawing us to a place of repentance. Some people very specifically for specific things. And God is saying, I know you don't want to give that up. I know you didn't want to hear that hard truth. But right now is the time that you release that to me. And so the Lord wants you to just come to Him, to release that to Him. And there's forgiveness. Jesus loved you so much that He died on the cross for your sins, for every sin that you would ever commit. And He offers you forgiveness, but He offers you a new heart and a new mind. And so, Lord, I pray right now you'd fill each person with your Holy Spirit. God, that you would work in their hearts. And right now with every head bowed, if, if, if you're here and you say,